So my dad passed away in 2015. We weren't talking and it took a month for his family to track me down. Before I ever knew he was gone, I started hearing from him in heaven. It consumed me. How is communication with the other side even possible? I left my corporate gig, studied with spiritual teachers on every coast, and worked with my angels to figure out the answers. Today, my mission is teaching you how to raise your vibration, shift your thoughts, trust your intuition, develop your unique spiritual gifts, and connect with your loved ones and angels on the other side. Friends, when you have these tools, life really does become heaven on earth. Hello, beautiful souls. Welcome back to the Angels and Awakening podcast. I'm your host and author, Julie Jancis, and today we're here with Heather White. Heather White is the author of the newly released book called One Green Thing. And I know that you're going to be really excited to hear her talk today because I know most of you who are listening um, to this podcast podcast are empaths like I am, and we are all feeling eco-anxiety, anxiety about everything that we hear that's happening to the earth and wanting to help, but not knowing where to help, how to help, how to incorporate health, um, helping the earth into our already busy schedules. So Heather's here today. She's going to help break this all down for us and really help us to leave today's episode feeling more peace, feeling more ease, and really having a plan of how to incorporate um, helping the earth into our daily lives. Heather, thank you for being here and, and welcome to the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I really oh, appreciate of course. it. Yes. So your book, this is your first book just released. Um, tell everybody a little bit about the book about yourself. I will. Thank you so much, Julie. And thanks to all of your listeners for tuning in. Um, I'm Heather White, a first-time author, but an environmental lawyer and someone who has done everything from run environmental nonprofits in Washington, D.C. to the nonprofit partner of Yellowstone National Park. I've worked on Capitol Hill. My background is environmental science, law, and policy, but I actually wrote the book, um, and your intro was a perfect setup for that. And I wrote the book because of my kids. Uh, my daughters are teenagers. They're 16 and 14. And they are incredibly worried about the future that they're inheriting. We all are. Mm -hmm. But my older daughter, when she was a freshman in high school, asked me if she could participate in the global climate strike that was inspired by Greta Thunberg. And it was a walkout uh, from school. And what's interesting is you know, my background is law, and so I'm not one to protest. It's not really kind of my thing. Um, but I said to her, of course you can. You, you, I'd be happy for you to do this. I'm an environmental um, environmentalist, environmental lawyer. You should go do this. But you know what? It's supposed to rain. And I live in Bozeman, Montana, and thunderstorms just aren't necessarily that common. And she had a really heavy backpack and a trumpet. And so, Julie, I said to her, why don't I pick you up and I'll drive you to the protest site? And let me just say that did not go well. <laughs> she was so upset with me for so many reasons. First, it was a walkout. Secondly, that I offered to drive her to a climate strike. And then she said to me, my younger daughter was also right there with her. 
you know, what you're worried about my backpack. You're worried about me carrying a trumpet from band in the rain. What about my future mom? You know, this, this whole issue of climate change is all on my shoulder. Generation Z, what are Gen Xers? What are baby boomers? What are millennials doing? You can't leave it all up to us. And I think that was really shocking because not only am I an environmental lawyer, my husband does environmental policy. This is our career, but it made me realize Julie, that I needed to step up and create an opportunity for more people to get involved in climate action. Because just like you were saying in the introduction, I think for many, many of us, the issue is so overwhelming. We don't really know where to start. You know, if you're not a protester or if you don't feel comfortable testifying on Capitol Hill or you're not someone who lobbies your legislature a lot, what, what do you do? Or if you don't have $30,000 to spend to put solar panels on your house, like what do you do? And so that's that's the the reason I wrote the book and why I'm so delighted to be here with you today to, to talk about it. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because in energy work, you tend to not perceive anymore with words. You perceive so much with energy and with all that we have been through, really not just within the last two years, but kind of going back to the 2008 recession, everything that's happening with um, climate change, um, things that are happening around the world with weather becoming more unpredictable. And there's not just... Um, you know, the things that we hear about down in Florida and hurricanes and fires out in the West. But I remember uh, a news story coming through last summer in 2021 about a flood that came through Germany out of nowhere and just wiped out an entire town. Um, then on top of that, you have the pandemic and now you have this um, crisis unfolding over in Europe. And I've been through the energy of PTSD and it feels almost kind of like your body's almost in this electric shock state all of the time where the littlest pin drop thing feels like a huge ripple effect in your body and your auric field. Are we as a collective humanity interpreting the news and everything about climate change in a way that is causing us PTSD? And if so, is that paralyzing us from taking more action? Such a great question, Julie. And the answer is yes. There is this new concept of eco-anxiety, which you um, just introduced to the listeners. The American Psychological Association has identified it as a chronic fear of environmental doom. A study in September 2020 of child psychiatrists said that um, almost half of the psychiatrists said that their patients had they had patients with climate anxiety or eco-anxiety. There was a survey last year in 2021 of 10,000 young people around the world, ages 16 through 25. One out of four said they didn't want to have children because they're so worried about the future. And 47%, so almost half, said that climate anxiety or eco-anxiety interferes with their daily life. And this was before the, the Ukrainian crisis unfolded. So to your point, yes, we are experiencing all of these 
um, harms and tragedies as PTSD and our young people, especially. And added on top of that, I write about this in the book, I call it the eco-anxiety trifecta. We first have an epidemic of loneliness. Gen Zers, those are kids born after 1997, eight out of 10 say they experience chronic loneliness compared to five out of 10 baby boomers. And this particular study was before before the pandemic happened. And we know with online school that just increased. The second is just generalized anxiety. This, this generation has a lot more anxiety in part, I think, because we're more comfortable talking about mental health and, and how that plays, but also um, most of the researchers say it is actually increased from previous generations. And then finally, social media. And it's interesting, social media creates a hyper awareness of what you are talking about. It's not just that you know Julie and Heather are invited to some party, but our friend Sarah was left out, which I think a lot of grownups assume that's what young people are, are talking about on social media. It's much more like, did you see this live footage from this bombing? Um, did you see this flooding of Germany? Did you see the subways flooding in, in China? Have you? So it's all of the harms and the negativity that are being shared at a really high rate. And yes, it is paralyzing. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book, not only for this entry point, for people to, to know that they can get involved, but also try to help people understand that climate action can be joyful. We need to lean into that energy of joy, of love, of care, and caring for our planet and caring for each other and really lean into that compassion. And when I talk about this concept of a one green thing, the idea is a daily practice. And so many of your listeners already have a daily practice in many other ways, but a daily practice of doing one green thing for the planet each day. And it can be however you define it. And so what I have in the book is what I call a service superpower assessment. It's a personality assessment, kind of like Myers-Briggs or Enneagram. Who are you when you show up to for others in service? And then I try to match you to an, some ideas of a one green thing that you can do each day, because we need to start talking about the joy and the future we can create together. We have the technology to deal with the climate crisis, but we have to start talking about what we can do the, the better world that we can create together. And that's the energy shift that I think that you're talking about of how we shift from that paralyzing fear to this positive, regenerative, beautiful, green future that we can build. And it's on all of us to do yeah. that. Yeah. So go into this more. So in your book, you can take a quiz and then it actually pairs you. Does it pair you kind of via your joys into what it is that you can do to help the earth? Yes. And what I, I love the idea of framing it as joy. I say service because I think a lot of times we get joy from helping others and not in a sense of like, you know, best and you're coming in to swoop in and tell someone how how it's done, but more, how do you authentically show up for the people that you love and the places you care about? So I have seven different profiles or archetypes. The first is the adventurer. That person is a hands-on learner, loves getting others and themselves out of their comfort zone. And so then I have ideas of a practice that an adventurer might want to do, a one green thing. Um, I think a lot of your listeners may be sages. That's someone who's very connected to the spiritual aspects of nature. And that person may do everything from, from um, you know, having like taking a, taking a script, um, I say a script, a scripture or a text or something that's very important to them and read it outside. Like that is actually a one green thing. 
or they may talk to their their community and say, hey, as a community, can we do a um, vegan meal once a week? Or can we decide to take action on this particular piece of legislation? Just depending on what is authentic to you. But the idea, and I think this is important, Julie, I say this as a as an environmental science you know major in undergraduate school, uh, and I am a wonk. That's one of the other profiles, and that's someone who loves the data and the charts and the science. A lot of environmentalists are wonks, and that's how we start the conversation. We start talking about 1.5 degrees um, Celsius and how we need to limit uh, warming there. We talk about the Build Back Better legislation and how different tax incentives can create opportunities for us to reduce carbon emissions, and that people kind of zone out. Yeah. So the whole idea is that we can move from that analytical like um, part, which of course we need, but in the communication, the idea is that it's not your, Julie, it's not your individual carbon footprint that I'm really talking about. This daily practice is a driver for culture change. And that culture shift is what we need for these big solutions to work. And obviously, if we get millions of us doing a one green thing each day, the math will add up and will be important for carbon emissions, but it's less about the math and more about the culture shift. That's what the practice is really about. And of course, the joy. Okay. So go deeper into the culture shift. What sure. are like, what are three to five things that everybody could be doing right now to add to that culture shift? Is it something as simple as, um, you know, uh, I've been seeing on Instagram, these ads where we're all buying these bigger tubs of laundry detergent, right? And all of these tubs stack up uh, on top of one another. Now they make boxes where there is no tub. You just have the laundry detergent. You put the little pod in each uh, load of laundry. No big tub to throw away. What are some things? Is it like that? Does it go deeper than that? Um, talk to us about kind of easy solutions that we could all take away right here, right now. That's such a great question too, Julie, because this is where people get hung up, right? Well, if the pod is wrapped in a plastic, but it biodegrades, but it has a toxic chemical in it, is that worse than using the plastic that I recycle, but not all the recycling happens? You know? yes. It just becomes this web that you keep trying to unravel and what's the right choice. And then a lot of times people just kind of throw their hands up. And um, what I'm going to tell, tell you with that, uh, with respect to that, I would avoid the pods <laughs> and try to use laundry detergent that's in um, material that isn't plastic. There's some brands that have a cardboard container that you can use or there's refillable stations they can use as bulk. That said, we've got to let go of the perfection. Like the perfectionism in environmentalism, it's just not there. Your intention does count um, in this context because you're trying to do the right thing. Um, so I think like just in generally, what I say is, you know, vote with your wallet, try to choose green brands and make better resources. And there's all kinds of great nonprofits. Consumer Reports tells you all kinds of ratings of different products that you may buy and what really is good for the environment, what isn't, that's a terrific resource. So there's a lot of great resources there. So, you know, buy less. I mean, I know this, you're, you're just going <laughs> to, some of your listeners will be like, wow, thanks, Heather, buy less. Wow. But seriously, you know, <laughs> buy less, you know, um, you, with the clothes you buy is really, that's really important. Trying to just think about your footprint with, with clothing and trying to reduce um, the fast fashion that you may buy. Now that we're, we're seeing a lot of brands 
um, that'll have like um, 50 or so seasons a year instead of the four seasons. So just think about secondhand clothing when you can or reuse, recycle. One of the things that I love to do, um, my friends, this was several years ago when I, I live out West now, but when I lived in DC at the beginning of every school year, we'd have a big clothing swap, which was awesome because, and, and we would just put everything on hangers and we, cause our kids were growing so fast. We would do all these great hand-me-downs, but everyone could choose what they wanted. They just weren't given a whole bunch of clothes that they couldn't use. And it was just a great way to um, reduce and reuse and recycle. I think the other thing that's really important. So one is devote with your wallet you know, think about the fashion that you buy, um, call your utility. I know this is so funny to say and geeky, but for most of us, energy is just kind of magic, right? I mean, we know we need to charge all of our electronic gadgets and we need heat and air conditioning, but where does it come from? Just try to, you know, spend five to 10 minutes. Really? It doesn't have to be a lot finding out where your power comes from and think about calling your utility and ask them about their renewable portfolio and what are they doing in energy? Because that consumer conversation does make a difference. And then I would also say, and this again, is probably pretty obvious, but but um, being intentional is important, is to vote, vote for candidates that care about climate and talk about climate and, and energy. It's really important. Democracy isn't a spectator sport. And a lot of people, especially if you're a sage, and connected to spirituality. Politics is not where there's a lot of positive energy. Politics is not something where people who are focused on joy and compassion necessarily want to spend their time because there's a lot of mudslinging, but it is really critically important to the environment that we, we live in. And then finally, I would say kind of the, the most important thing you can do is to talk you know, and create space for young people. Ask the young people that you love how they feel. And one of the things I get, Julie, I think you'll think this is funny, is I hear a lot of friends saying, well, Heather, of course, your kids have eco-anxiety because they're your kids. You know, you, you do environmental law, you talk about this around the dinner table. And I've said to all of them, just take five minutes and ask them, the young people you love, how they feel. And to a person, everyone has said that their kids, their kids have said, I think about climate change all the time. We just don't talk about it as a family. Yeah. you know, or in our community. And um, I think that's important for us to make space and let them know that they're not alone and we're here to help. So how are you helping reduce, like as a parent, that anxiety within your kiddos? So we know that they have this anxiety. We know that they feel more lonely. There's more awareness within their generation than there has ever been before. What steps are you taking as a parent? That's another super insightful question. And it's much easier said than done Yeah, <laughs> as all things with parenting or any relationship with someone you love. But the first is to listen, is to create space to listen. It's very powerful to hold space and let young people have the mic and share their concerns. I think the second is talking about solutions and, and understanding that there are great opportunities out there. My daughters are very focused on the Green New Deal and very excited about that. And um, obviously that hasn't been moving in Congress necessarily, but the solutions are out there. The, the, the platforms and the, map, you know, the roadmaps are out there of what we can do. And I think that's kind of an intellectual conversation. I think the third thing is action. And that's really what this book is all about this idea of taking action each day in the way that it's authentic for you. So it really can be spending time outdoors because we need everybody engaged in the movement. Everyone is welcome, but 
spending time in nature restores our soul. It helps us understand why we're doing the work that we're going to do. It helps personalize the climate climate movement as well. And in the book, I have a lot of journal prompts and questions. I ask you to think about special places in nature that you love and why they're important to you and what you think they might look like 10 or 15 years from now, what you would like them to look like, how you could get involved to help support those areas that are important to you spiritually. So I think there's, um, I think the most important thing is just this idea of taking action each day. Action doesn't erase the anxiety, of course, but it can make you feel like you're making a difference. And I think that's, that's really the essence of the book. Um, one of the examples, Julie, which I think you might get a kick out of is my teenager, my older daughter, especially is just like, mom, skipping the straw. Seriously. Seriously. Like there's a oil spill in Nigeria and you're telling me to skip the straw you know, doing my part. And I said, yeah, because there's an oil spill in Nigeria and you're 16 years old and you live in Bozeman, Montana. What are you supposed to do? I mean, you could write to the United Nations, but it's not like, so we have to try to focus on controlling what we can control. And these small steps and these small actions, even skipping the straw, you're sending a signal to wherever you got that beverage that that's not what you want. Yeah. You're also reminding them that it goes straight into the landfill. If you use a straw, are you going to be struck by lightning? No. (laughs) But it's just these, these, this intentionality does make a difference in that realm where you can make an impact. And it's important to do that. I love it. Um, So Aaron Brockovich wrote the foreword to your book. And I remember just the impact that her movie had on me way back in the day uh, where Julia Roberts played her and um, the impact that she had was just phenomenal. Did you get to meet her, talk to her? And um, if so, what was that like? Well, I've worked with Aaron for more than a decade. Uh, we've done a lot of work on water quality together, and she is just a, a force of nature. I mean, Julia Roberts nailed the character, deserved the Oscar for sure <laughs> in capturing Aaron's spirit. And Aaron, um, if you do listen to this, I love you. And yes, she does have a potty mouth for sure. <laughs> but um, I, I've I've just, I'm so grateful to have her as a friend. She's such an authentic person. And I think that's why people resonate with her so much. She's unafraid to tell you like it is and to also, you know, share her vulnerabilities. And I think that's an important part of this book is that talking about all these issues as you set up this conversation, Julie, is really vulnerable. It's really vulnerable to think about the future that we're leaving the next generations and how can we be a good ancestor and think about the people who've created opportunities for us and how we might be able to create paths for future future loved ones. It's a lot. And Aaron can talk about how overwhelming it is in a way that is um, fun and joyful. And that's what I try to do in this book too. But she is an incredible person, a dear friend, and I'm so lucky to have worked with her and to have known her for the last 10 years and grateful that she did the introduction. And I think this is something that's near and dear to her heart for sure. Oh yeah. Of of course. Um, Okay. So I've got another question for you. I don't want you to feel like your face is turning red and steam is going to come out, but I don't know who else to ask about this. So of course, like I see climate change. I believe in climate change. I believe that we're on the precipice of something major. We have to make a huge, huge correction. 
When I talk to others, though, in my family about this at family parties, there's one person who always comes back and says, Julie, when I was younger in the 60s, the scientists were telling us that we were on the precipice of a massive um, ice age that was about to come in. And this person always brings up the same old point. They were telling us it was the ice age before. Now they're telling us the earth is warming. We have more tools. We have scientific studies. There are numbers on this. We can't be experts at everything. We can't actually go to every part of the world, check everything out and know for certain. You have, you've been in front of this. You've been doing this. What do we say to people in those circumstances? What are the facts? What are, what do we say? First of all, bravo. Julie, you nailed it. You just said exactly what you should say. And we all have someone like that, that we love, right? Yeah. <laughs> and some people we might be able to move, some people we may not. I write about this in, in the book. So the first thing I would say is that um, what may be really convincing to folks who are uncertain is looking at what the oil companies and the fossil fuel industry knew and when they knew it. And there's been all kinds of great exposés. There's one in Inside Climate News. There's a great TED Talk by a guy named Ben Frentata. Basically, it says um, and shows internal documents where fossil fuel industry companies as early as the 1940s and 50s were briefed on what carbon dioxide emissions from their products would do to global climate and weather patterns. So the industry knew it. There's also been billions of dollars spent to try to confuse us as, as to what the cause is. Actually, this whole idea of an individual carbon footprint was initially promoted by um, BP, British Petroleum, as the idea is the consumers were responsible. So my book is different than that. You're not responsible. The companies are the ones who created it, but but we all have a role to play in the solution and to the culture change. So that's the first thing is what did the companies know and when did they know it? The second is just the scientific global consensus. I mean, that 99% of climate scientists around the world say that the fact that human activity from mostly our energy and transportation sources are the causes, is the primary cause of, of climate change. It's a 99% scientific consensus. Um, there, the recent United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC report, you may have seen some you know, international news about this, said that, that it's unequivocal that our activities are ca causing climate change. So it's just not really up for debate anymore. And you might be able to move the needle as more you talk to people. But I think the important thing is that we need to start talking about solutions. And one of the things I try to say in the book, Julie, that may appeal to the folks who are like, yeah, it was cooling, now it's warming, who cares? A lot of the solutions just make sense no matter if you believe in global warming, right? Like clean energy. Well, people can see extracting coal from the ground and the impact it takes when you see what strip mining looks like. When you go to a coal facility, I'm near Butte, Montana, which electrified the world because of copper mining. It's now a super fun site and you know a lot of environmental degradation there. It's pretty um, amazing actually to see kind of the environmental costs. When you see things like that, you understand that you know windmills make sense, right? Solar panel makes sense. The barriers are, are to getting them to scale and we need to provide incentives for that to happen. So once you start talking about solution, green design, rooftop gardens, you know, there's a way that we can create this regenerative, beautiful future. 
and we can start talking about the solutions. So whether or not you're, you believe in the client, the climate crisis is not even as important as let's start talking about the solutions that are win-win no matter what. Yeah. So let's break this down a little bit even more for people. Um, when I was, uh, let's see, my daughter is 11 today. And um, so- Happy birthday. Uh, <laughs> That's yeah, wonderful. My little pumpkin. Um, when she was first born, she had a ton of different issues going on. And I should preface this with before she was born, um, we had composting outside. We got the cloth, not cloth. Yeah, we got cloth diapers instead of we didn't want to use the regular diapers. We tried in every different way, shape and form to just go green, you know, around our house and in our lives. She was born and had so many different medical complexities that she was basically um, like 10 days in, few days out, 10 days in uh, for the first six months of her life. And she was a very medically complex child for the first three years. And when we were in the hospital, I think it blew my husband away because um, so much is just trashed and it's a survival thing, right? Like when you're in the hospital, you're just trying to survive. We were just trying to survive those first three years, but all of the clean stuff went out the window to just survive. And it opened my eyes to what you were saying before, and I'm not sure that everybody gets it on this level. We can do as much as we can do in our individual lives, and we should and we will. But on the other hand, these big companies do have to make major changes so that that is the big business. That's the one operating with just tons of people, tons of resources and tons of garbage and tons of waste. How do we as individuals help nudge the bigger companies to make the changes that need to be made? Because if they make them collectively, the companies I would think can do so much more because they're impacting so many different people? Oh, such such a great question. And Julie, first of all, what a challenge it must have been for all of you um, those first three years. So I'm just sending you lots and lots of love and obviously a connection to the spirituality of all of that and this idea of loving something to the point, like just when you become a parent, you just don't necessarily understand the capacity you have to love and care. Uh, for another being. So just sending you um, lots of love for that experience. And yes, you have to be in survival mode, of course. And that's, I think that's important is that my whole book is we all have a role to play, but it's not our fault. Right. <laughs> that's what, It's not our fault. Um, but we do have a role to play in the culture shift question. A couple of things. First, they're a great organization called Healthcare Without Harm. I encourage your listeners to check it out, especially if they are dealing with a situation like you did. They are really trying to push the medical community to have uh, less toxic chemicals in their products that they use and also think about how they're using all of their products and cleaners, et cetera, in the hospital without compromising health, um, especially after we've had a pandemic. So that's a great organization to look up. That's Healthcare Without Harm. Healthcare Without Harm. Great organization okay. to Google and, and learn more about what they're doing to educate folks on toxic chemicals, on pollution, and how healthcare 
kind of contributes to that. But this whole idea that you're really talking about is systemic change, right? And we've had companies, um, the, the fossil fuel industry has been propped up by billions and billions of taxpayer dollars, you know, for decades. So they've had an advantage, of course, over clean energy and clean technology. And now it's time to le- level the playing field. So the way that we can make companies take action, there's there's three ways. The first is call them. I know that sounds so old school of, well, wait, what do you mean? We, we just text, we don't call, but they have these 1-800 numbers, write snail mail letters and say, you know, we expect for you to be stewards of the planet. Now, the second thing is like, you can expect all you want. <laughs> as a consumer, but sometimes there need to be laws and requirements. And the second is really talking to members of Congress, leadership. And I say talking to members of Congress, it seems so far out, but really there's this number, 202-224-3121. Say it again. 202-224-3121. That's the congressional switchboard. You just type in your zip code and they connect you to an office. And you say, look, I think it's really important for things like, here's a great example, break free from plastic act. Mm -hmm. So there is a piece piece of legislation that's been introduced in the house and in the Senate. That's all about making sure that companies are responsible for the products that they create. They're responsible for the disposal because this whole idea of littering and us picking up the trash, the consumers are the ones who are dealing with all of these um, plastic water bottles, not the manufacturers. So the manufacturers would be responsible for the product and the end use of that, not us to recycle it. So we need that systemic change, right? And so asking for that. And then I think, so the first I've said is, you know, telling the companies you expect it. The second is telling members of Congress and saying, hey, we need legislation. Um, There was just recently the Securities and Exchange Commission. Okay, how geeky is this? But they're asking for disclosure about your carbon footprint now. They're, They're looking at a rule to require companies to disclose that to investors that has a lot of power. And I think the third thing, and this is really micro, but if you do have you know, a retirement account, or if you do have investments, talk to your financial planner and say, I want to make investments in companies that are sustainable. I don't want my 401k or whatever, you know, if you have a mutual fund or whatever you may have, I don't want that security to be locked up in um, something that's supporting companies that are not sustainable. That Those individual actions really, really matter. And I, I know it sounds so, I think for some people, it sounds really trivial. And for other people, it sounds so incredibly geeky, but those actions do create that culture change we need. Because again, as much as we all have a unique role to play, we're not responsible for it. Yeah. Right. You know what's coming to me right now, too? We can all do little pieces every day, but getting on the phones, writing those letters, even if we took that one week out of our year, right? And said, this is our week to like write these letters because there's always so much to do. But World Earth Day, is that the one in April, April 22nd? April 22nd is Earth Day. Mm-hmm. Earth Day. If everybody came along and just took one week, would that make a difference and, yeah. and wrote those letters and made those calls and everything makes a difference. I encourage this idea of a daily practice. And again, the daily practice can be, I recycled, I planted flower, you know, I planted a flower. I sent, spent time with my pet. It doesn't have to be, I took a, I went to the climate strike, right? It, it, it's this whole scale of engagement, but it all matters and it all adds up. It's very important. And I think, unfortunately, because we've had in the environmental movement such and understandably such a focus on this big policy and market changes we need, these big systemic changes, people have heard a message that 
they don't matter. <laughs> They've somehow received that, but they actually matter, especially all the empaths that are listening right now. Cause you just feel all the feels <laughs> yeah, and it, it can be overwhelming, but these small steps can be empowering and help you kind of focus on where you can make a difference in any way that works for you. And that, and, and knowing that you're giving back and helping take care of the, the planet that we all love. Yeah. So we all know all the doom and gloom stories, but one thing that we focus on here on the podcast is that our vision counts too. The vision that we hold within ourselves, within our energy field about the future, that's the vision that we're wanting to create. Give us the best case scenario. You know all of the information, you know all the stats, you know all the facts. What's the best case vision of how the planet turns around climate change? How fast does that happen? What does that look like? Are inventions being created that make big differences as well? Give us the vision that we can hold when we're praying of what we want to happen. Oh, wow. I love that so much, Julie. And actually in my book, I have a visualization exercise yes. where you, the reader, envision what 2050 can look like. Mm -hmm. What is your best version of a regenerative, um, sustainable, green, and just future in 2050? Because that's really the year that we're focused on with respect to all of these big policy initiatives. Um, and I don't use the word policy initiatives, just so you know, in my book a lot. It's a very you know easy read. Um, but that's so funny that you asked me the question that I ask readers. I love it. I love it. And so um, my vision is we, you know, we, I think, I think in the last year, and unfortunately it's because a lot of the events that you'd mentioned when we started our conversation, the, the extreme weather events, more and more people are connecting the dots with how we're living and what we're experiencing and our impact on the planet. So I can see that we move forward on a, at the United Nations at the United Nations level but also in the United States on clean energy huge investments in solar and in wind and looking at water and a big big push in environmental design for our heating systems oh well, I know people get really excited when they're envisioning good heating systems heating systems cooling systems um thinking about deforestation so I think it kind of in this visual it's lush forests. It's us investing in what's called blue carbon, like mangroves and um, seagrasses where the, the soil in um, these kind of wetland areas can, marsh areas can contain a lot of carbon so they can become carbon sinks. Same with forests. So we're investing in what are called ecological services in our geeky sense, but basically nature-based solutions. So huge investment in nature-based solutions, a huge investment in clean energy technology. And then also, and this is a great resource for your listeners, a wonderful organization called Project Drawdown pointed out that educating girls internationally and thinking about girls' equality and access to education can actually be a huge driver of innovation, but also um, help us deal with things like pop, um, po uh, you know, population overgrowth and also help us um, bring more people to the table in their creative thinking with solutions. So um, that's kind of the envision that, that what I have. Yeah. We have all the targets mapped out in the Paris Agreement. 
The challenge is we need to give money to the developing countries so they can implement a lot of these technologies. Because I think one of the things is we're envisioning 2050, and as your listeners are thinking about it, and as empaths, they already know that the inequality is stark. The people who are experiencing the biggest impacts of the climate crisis have contributed the least carbon. And and empaths just intuitively know that and see that that is wrong. And so in this envisioning of seeing equity, seeing justice, and climate justice is the term that we activists use as part of that vision for 2050 is very important. As we think about healthcare, as we think about citing clean energy in communities that normally had plastic pollution or oil production facilities in their backyards, how are we giving back to these communities that need to be uplifted? So I think that's, I mean, that may sound very vague, but I actually send, um, you just have this whole exercise, this journaling exercise in the book about what is your vision of 2050 and how can we get there? Because we need to see it in order to believe it, we need to take that manifesting energy, that prayer, that spiritual energy to, to, to create this beautiful future. And I think that's where the joy part that we were talking about comes in because it can be joyful. It's not just running away from something it's we can create something better. And that's where the systemic change only comes when all of us are part of, part of it. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Um, Heather, thank you so much for being here with us today. Your book is called One Green Thing, Just Tilt the Shelves. And um, you can find it anywhere that books are sold. We're going to put that in the show notes below. Heather, if people wanted to reach out to you or find you personally, where can they do that? Oh, thank you so much for asking. OneGreenThing.org is my nonprofit. And my personal website is HeatherWhite.com. If you could follow us on Instagram at OneGreenThing, that would be great. And then just really quickly, Julie, the subtitle of the book is Discover Your Hidden Power to Help Save the Planet. Mm -hmm. So I just want to leave your listeners with the, the understanding that um, there is a deep power, you know, spiritually, a deep power as we all work towards something collectively to make a big difference for the people we love. Yeah. And here at Angels and Awakening, you know, you put something in the notes in our email and you said, you know, your listeners can really be angels for the earth. And I think that our spiritual listeners, that might be a great way to think about it is you can be an angel for the planet. Absolutely. We need you. Yeah. Yeah. We need you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Heather. Thank you.